Hello, I'm TJ and welcome to my garden. Uh, today is the much talked about by me for the last three days <laughs> episode on land races. Uh, this one will probably not be as long as the other episodes. I don't know that I have quite as much to say about land races. It's not as common a practice as growing, say, heirloom varieties or hybrid varieties as these days, but it's got kind of an interesting history um, and there are some benefits to actually doing this. So land races are basically just populations of plants. You aren't engaged in as direct a selective breeding as you would be with, say, a heirloom variety, and definitely nowhere near as, as focused as, say, breeding hybrids or anything like that is. Um, mostly what you're doing is you're just occasionally weeding out variety, you know, traits in the plants that you don't like. So if you have one that grows taller than you like, or say one maybe has an itchy surface to it, say with okra, for instance, the infamous okra itch, um, maybe has spines you don't like. You know, whenever you see a trait you don't like, you just remove that plant from the population. And over time, what you're going to create is a population of plants that can survive in your conditions, because they all survive to maturity to reproduce, and you're going to gradually weed out traits you find really offensive. Uh, you won't create exactly the plant you want. It takes much more focused breeding for that. But you will create a population that hopefully you're okay with. And the sort of best part about this is it's going to be a genetically diverse population that means it's going to be way more resistant to diseases and pests because they're not all going to be fairly similar they're all got each one's going to be as different as say two different people right they're going to be a very genetically diverse population for what you have there obviously you can't have a massive gene pool um, in general right most people aren't going to have a huge gene pool because we have limited space but after several years of saving seed from, say, multiple varieties that are allowed to interbreed freely and pulling out those ones you don't like, you're going to get something that is consistently going to be something you more or less like. Uh, there are a few projects to encourage more of this in home gardening. Uh, in home gardening, it's, it's kind of especially handy because, generally speaking, a gardener can do this over many generations in his own backyard or even on an allotment or wherever else. And if you want to take a pause from it, you just store your saved seed for a year or two and start back up the next year. So even though this is a long-term project, for a home gardener, it's actually pretty ideal. Uh, for school and community gardens and other things like that, it's actually still not that bad. Because what you'll probably do is start with varieties that are already successful right you'll pick some plants you already like like say several varieties of okra um, that's actually a project i've been doing at the garden where i work it's may not get continued very long because it's it's not necessarily you know it, it'll only probably last as long as i'm there uh, if i move on to another position or whatever later in the future then i don't foresee anybody else really continuing this but um over the course of a few years, we're going to have a population of mixed okra that has some of the traits of some of these sort of Star David type okras, little chubby ones that in cross-section look really distinctly like stars. Um, some of the longhorn red varieties, I have, I have one of those that we've got in that mix as well, and the Clemson spineless. And I'm kind of having to deal with right now the fact that this mix of plants has two varieties that aren't spineless that do cause the infamous okra itch. If you've ever picked uh, harvested okra and then afterwards 
every exposed part of your skin is unbearably itchy. That is okra itch. Okra is covered in these little spines that have chemicals that make your skin uh, irritable or itch uh, right after you're done picking it. So, you know, as you're working in an okra field, you get really itchy, which is a good reason to always, when you're working with okra, wear long sleeves and gloves. I always forget the first harvest of the year and I never forget it again for the rest of the year. And then the following year, I forget all over again. Uh, spineless varieties like Clemson spineless don't tend to have a really bad itch problem. There still will be some itching here and there, but it's nowhere near as bad. And so I've included them in that population. My hope is that over time we can weed out the itchiness, but keep some of the traits of the other ones and create, you know, plump. I'm actually hoping to have kind of plump little red pods. And I, I know there are already varieties that do that. I just want my own kind of mixed population that still has some variety. We'll still occasionally get a really long pod. We'll still occasionally get a little plump green pod. But overall, tends towards the shape I like and tends towards being spineless. So that's a long-term experiment at <laughs> a job that is, you know, it's an after-school program. Uh, the turnover can be fairly high. So it's a long-term project in a place where I don't control everything. But I've saved some of the seed for it myself, and I may continue the project on my own even after I'm no longer doing it there. So it's still something you can do as an individual gardener for a while. And if you have an environment, say a school garden or community garden, where you have um, some kind of oversight committee or some group that can ensure that project continues, uh, that can be a really interesting long-term project. Because what you may end up doing is creating a land race that is consistent enough to really be a cultivar at that point. And then you've got a new cultivar that is specific to your uh, region, your conditions, your growing practices. Uh, but it's also something you can name after whatever project you're involved with and sell it to other people. You can do the same thing with a land race. And a few people are already starting to do that, um, is to sell uh, seed samples from a land race to start your own land race. And this practice is very old. This is the sort of the original form of plant breeding. We've only really been like intensively breeding plants relatively recently for most varieties of plants. There are some plants that we've been breeding for very long periods of time, but for most varieties, we've really only been doing the kind of incredibly focused breeding we do nowadays for a short period of time. For most of history, it was land races. And that's why, for the most part, when people talk about different, you know, cultivars of plants, they usually are focused more on regions, right? This region has lettuce that tends to be this way. This region has lettuce that tends to be a different way. And that's largely because those were genetically diverse land race populations. And once we started doing more focus breeding, once we learned more about plant genomes, we began creating these plants that were, by comparison, quite inbred. Um, if you look at, say, a Clemson spineless, for instance, as I was just talking about it, its genome it's going to be way less diverse if you take a population of those than the land races from which it is originally descended. Um, now, the upshot of that is they're really consistent as far as their traits. The downside is they're also really consistent as far as traits that make them susceptible to disease, viruses, fungi, uh, and pests. So in a diverse population, there's a little bit of changes between each one's immune system and everything else. In a homogenous population there isn't. And so that's what we give up with intensive plant breeding. We give up that diversity. We try to get a little bit of it back through complex hybridization methods, which in the last episode I covered have their own problems. Um, but a land race keeps that diversity 
at the expense of uniformity, right? If you grow a land race of okra, you can get them to be fairly consistently a type, but unless you actually start intensively breeding them and thus narrowing their genome, there's going to be a bit of diversity and they're not all going to be the same. Now, I would argue for home gardeners, that's a plus. Um, you can occasionally get something you know, interesting every year that's maybe a little different than everything else you get. But for the most part, you don't need this one specific flavor profile and shape and whatever of okra or lettuce. You just need that type, right? If you want lettuce, you want loose leaf lettuce, or you want heading lettuce, it being a, you know, black seeded Simpson is not as important to most people. So I think that having a little more diversity in our home gardens, at least, and maybe other types of gardens, uh, can be incredibly beneficial both to our ability to keep them. It means we get, we have to use less pesticides. We have to worry less about um, insect pests and diseases and fungal infections. If some of our plants become susceptible, doesn't mean all of them are. Uh, this would especially be handy for certain types of squash and stuff like that. They're very susceptible to squash bug, right? There are some varieties that aren't. Uh, for instance, this year, every variety of squash in my garden died except for the bulls. The bulls survived just fine. Uh, they're putting on fruit as we speak big knobby bull squash uh, they're gonna be kind of awesome sadly going into halloween our pumpkins died but we do have the bulls and they're kind of knobby and cool looking and if we had a population where some of the plants had that bull genome and some of the plants had others and they were kind of a mix of traits we would have probably more of our plants survive whereas the varieties we did use a lot of them were susceptible and all the plants of that one variety were susceptible. So each of those varieties that was susceptible was the whole variety that was susceptible. So they all died. Um, so yeah, I, I think land races hold some promise. I think what we may see, at least as far as gardening, not so much necessarily agriculturally, but at least small market gardens, home gardens, that scale, um, I think we might see a return to more land races because what we can do is we can take the varieties that have been improved and that have all these traits we like. And then we can let them sort of freely hybridize in our gardens to produce a land race that has those beneficial traits, but enough diversity that we don't have to look after them too much. You know, I mean, that they're not these sort of athletes propped up with all the, you know, specific nutrition and care and everything else. And that they have to be preened and focused. They can just be a little diverse and some of them ain't going to be perfect, but they're going to be all right. <laughs> and we're going to get that mix of traits and genes and everything else. Um, so I would definitely say give land racing, I, I don't know if it's a verb, but it is now, a try. Um, grow a diverse mix of plants. Don't worry about separating them so they maintain you know, pollen individually. Unless you are, pollen individuality is if that's a word. I mean separation. You know, basically uh, isolation distances. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, only worry about maintaining those if you have varieties you really want to keep separate. Um, there are, you know, if you're maintaining an heirloom variety that for whatever reasons that you want to keep consistent, then yeah. But otherwise, let them freely interbreed and see what you get. And maintain that population over multiple generations, and you'll get something very adapted to your conditions that's also really diverse and interesting. Anyway, uh, that's all about, about all I have to say about land races. Um, a lot of that is going to be do-it-yourself and monitoring over several years and just consistently saving and restarting seed um, because it's a practice by and large the human race has fallen out of and it's something that you need to revive for yourself. There are resources online. I'll try to link to a couple um, for people who are doing that. I actually linked to some 
last week when I talked a little bit about land races with corn. Um, I'll share that link in these show notes as well. Um, a man who write, wrote an article about bringing back land races. So there's a lot of possibility there for the home gardener. Um, so definitely look into it. Maybe give it a try if you have the space and the time. Uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about uh, self-fertile varieties. And then Friday we're going to wrap it all up with some different breeding projects and stuff like that you can do. So definitely stay tuned. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like the episode, you can send me a comment or uh, tell me what you thought, any questions you might have over at uh, tjsgarden.com. You can just go to the contact me page for that. If you want to subscribe to the podcast or you want to share it with a friend, and please, by all means, share it with a friend, you can go to podcast.tjsgarden.com. Uh, that has all the links so you can subscribe and whatever you, you, you use to subscribe. But I really would appreciate you sharing the podcast. It does get a lot more listeners' ears on it. Uh, other than that, have a great day and go enjoy your garden. Bye.